You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. He uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to Toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 Young Street and tell them Aaron sent you this episode of Speech Bubble is brought to you by Hastings Barbershop with four Toronto locations to get you perfectly quaffed in Leslieville, Cabbage Town, Corktown, and on the Danforth, you can stop looking like Wolverine and start looking like Superman. Their location in Leslieville even has a snack bar attached, and who doesn't love snacks with their haircut? Trust me guys, the owner Carolina does my hair at the new Corktown location in the basement at 402 King Street East, and she's good people. She knows her shit when it comes to hair. No joke, since getting my hair cut at Hastings, all my hairstyles have been 100% wife approved. And let me tell you, that didn't always used to be the case. So hit up HastingsBarbershop.com, book online at the location nearest you, and follow them on social media at HastingsBarbershopTO on Facebook, and just HastingsBarbershop on Instagram and Twitter. And when your hair looks better than it has ever been, tell them Aaron sent you. This episode of Speech Bubble is brought to you by the Amok Podcast, as in Run Amok, A-M-O-K. Amok is a fictional sci-fi comedy, 11 years in the making, in the vein of those classic radio plays like The Shadow or Superman. It stars Evelyn Halliday, a plucky administrator for the Earth Empire Utopia who dreams of becoming an astronaut and going to the moon. Sounds like a simple dream, right? Unfortunately, that dream becomes more distant than ever when she's named the president of the Earth Empire's Central Reserve and is bored stiff by the monotony of the job. Anyone would be. But then Earth's mayor makes up a false trade war with a fake moon emperor he names Mr. Lloyd Schneerman, and suddenly... Evelyn is thrust closer to her lunar landing than ever before as a once utopian Earth begins to run amok. Sound cool? Well, Never Sleeps Network has an exclusive sneak preview just for you. Check it out. Welcome to the Earth Empire. Voted best planet in a sweeping global ballot. What makes us so great? Money! That's right. Lots of money. 
and we here at the Earth Empire Central Reserve make the planet's most versatile money money can buy. Support Earth's economy. Buy Earth money. Money. Oh, the choices you can have. The Earth Empire Central Reserve does not recommend not choosing money because that is one of the choices you do not have. Crazy, right? Amok promises all kinds of thrills, chills, and spills with lots of laughter and a little sex and violence for good measure because who doesn't love the sex and violence? It's a bizarre social satire with great lampooning of our current economic and political situation. And they need your help. The crew behind Amok wants to give you, our listeners, the opportunity to help produce the show. So check out their GoFundMe at GoFundMe.com slash Amok Radio. That's A-M-O-K Radio. Help produce the show, and when you do, tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You probably found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. With me today is one of the unsung heroes of Canadian comics. He's an artist, inker. You've probably read a lot of his work, but you may not be aware. I mean, he's best known as the inker on uh, Runaways by uh, Brian K. Vaughan, inking the work of Adrian Alfona. He's also worked on Rift World 8 as an artist himself. Uh, He's done a lot of inking for the Superior Octopus and other titles from Marvel. X-Men Gold is one of the titles that he's worked on. So uh, we're very honored to have Craig Jung on the podcast. Welcome, Craig. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, I've, I've been uh, wanting to have you on the show for a long time. You, you know a lot of the people that we've had on before. So I guess the way that we usually get started is, um, where did you grow up? Where were you born, generally? Well, I was born in uh, Toronto. I was born and raised here. So, you know, ever since I was a kid, you know, I was in Toronto. So I know a lot of the Toronto scene and, and you know, I've been here. That's awesome. Um, The thing that I noticed when I was doing my research is the first comic uh, that you saw was sort of Alpha Flight number one. Was that the comic that got you into comics? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Alpha Flight number one. Basically, it's it's a very common story that happens to a lot of kids back in, I guess, the 80s. So uh, one of our classmates brought in a comic and you're like... I've never seen this thing before. What is this? You know, what's this cool book with pictures in it and words and all these like superheroes? And that comic happened to be Alpha Flight. Did you did you recognize that it was Canadian at the time? Did that make it more more thrilling for you? Well, no, I actually had no idea um, that it was Canadian. Actually, the funny story about that is this. so so my friend brought that comic in, and so my brother's a little older and he could go to a comic shop, and I asked him to get the Alpha Flight. 
but he came back and he said, no, there's no Alpha Flight. And so he got me a Spider-Man. So I actually got into Spider-Man. But like a few months later, I see this comic book that he has in his head. It's like, what is that? It's like, oh, it's Alpha Flight. Where did you find Oh, man. <laughs> so he started collecting. So I kind of read his Alpha Flight. And I love the series. And then it was after reading it that I realized this Canadian is really cool with all the Canadian characters and Canadian superheroes. But before then, I had no idea they were Canadian uh, superheroes. That's awesome. Wow. So did you follow John Byrne after that? Uh, well, my brother ended up uh, collecting the X-Men and I collected Spider-Man. So we trade comic books. So most of the John Byrne stuff was in the X-Men run. So I did follow him through the X-Men stories. But back then it was just like, you know, you, you didn't really pay him as much attention to who was drawing it, just like this the cool art because you were kids, right? And uh, just reading the stories were really awesome. Yeah, I think it took like the 90s and like Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane before people started paying attention to the artists. Oh, definitely. Like, I mean, it wasn't until like later on that, you know, I really got into comics and started collecting for myself and I started going to comic book shops that I kind of s sought out a lot of the artists that I liked mm -hmm. because especially, you know, especially the image uh, ages, you know, you start recognizing the names and it became more popular and you follow, I'd follow the artist through titles rather than following the title. Was so. it the image artists that were the ones that you were, that you were a fan of first? Uh, well, I mean, there was all the old school stuff, uh, you know, Mike Sex here at the con too, so I, lo I lo loved his stuff back then. But it was, again, it was like, you know, you were reading The Secret Wars and you loved it because of that. You didn't really uh, associate the artist uh, going from title to title until later on right and it right. was just image that they kind of push the names more that you kind of recognize the names and then you go and grab the comic book from, nice. from them. so when you when did you go from being a fan of comics to thinking like I wanna I want to do this for a living uh, I think uh, I, I don't know if you, you some of the some of your guests probably know that we had a there was a studio in Toronto beforehand um, yeah I, I had Valentine Delandro on and Marvin Law and they told me about Bright Anvil Studios you were part of that right yeah yeah definitely um, back in the day uh, I guess uh, after because I went to university at U of T and then it's like I, it wasn't really for me as much it's more academic stuff and then I was trying to do more art afterwards so I went to OCAD and at that time in my you know growth I, I went to there was a store um, on Queen Street called Alternate Gravity. I think it's Alternate Gravity. And um, there, was a, there was a studio up there. And uh, there's a bunch of guys there. Steve McNiven was there. Um, and uh, this was actually before Fallon and Marvin. And I think Francis was, uh, came later as well. But um, there's a little studio upstairs and they were drawing. And this was also like the image was kind of booming at that time. So a lot of like really cool art was coming out. So at what time period was this? Like 90s or uh, early 2000s? Mid 90s, I think it was. Okay. It was mid to late 90s. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, so I don't remember exact dates, but this is like mid 90s, uh, probably 96-ish, I would say. Right. Um, so I don't know if the bus came yet for the, <laughs> for the image, like the comics itself. But um, there was a... Right after that, there was the bust of the images, but I kind of like got back into comic books because I love comic books before and started drawing. And there are some phenomenal artists, and there was no internet back in the, not really uh, back in the day. So a lot of the you know community was through the Toronto scene, and you know you had local artists 
that you learned off of, and uh, my buddy Logan uh, had that, he owned that store, so he collected a group of guys that kind of just learned off each other. And that's how we got into the comic book industry type thing. Wow, so this comic shop basically started their own studio. Yeah. It was Bright Anvil Studio. Yeah, basically. yeah. Back then there was no communities, like, well, no community that I knew of. Like, it's, it's hard to, it's not like you can go online and say, you know, comic book art and Google, <laughs> you know, Google who's around, right? Right. So back then it's like, oh, it's all it's like, what's all these like art desks here? And why are these guys drawing? And like, it's on the second floor. And, and so I just kind of looked at, oh, we have a little studio here. And we're just learning off each other and we're trying to make comic books, right? Nice. So what did you learn from a lot of those guys? How did you adapt and get to a professional level? Well, it took a little bit. I mean, like, uh, I think Logan was working at uh, Extreme at that point, too. So, you know, he's flying back and forth. And so he learned a lot of tricks from Extreme Studios. So, you know, even the basic stuff, you know, like, what do you draw? Like, how do you create a professional comic book? You know, like, back, like, now you can go on Google and say, oh, you got to get 11 by 17s, get some comic book boards. You know, you know the, the print sizes and all that stuff and how to construct the page. But, you know, back in the day, you didn't know that stuff. You drew in like full scat paper or, or you know, eight and a half by 11. Like, oh, is this how they print it? No. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, uh, you learn a ton of stuff. And back in the day, there's like um, cross hatching, learn how to cross hatch, you know, anatomy and all that stuff. I mean, it wasn't the greatest anatomy in the image days, but, you know, at least it was something, right? Right, right. Like, and it was like sort of the big muscles. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah, super big muscles. A lot of pouches, you know, a lot of, you know, boots and, you know, all these uh, different costumes. So, yeah. So you were just hanging out, like, learning from other people. Yeah. Who were the people that you most admired while you were there? Like, you know, you, like, Val Valentine Delandro from Bitch Planet was there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bitch Planet now. And then also, like, you said Steve McNiven for a while. Yep. What did you learn from some of the guys that came through? Well, I think back in the day, Steve was probably the one that was kind of, like, trying, experimenting a lot. And uh, he was, like, uh, he was also a teacher, too, an art teacher. So he was very uh, patient, and, and he actually taught a lot of stuff like I mean like just just you kind of just absorbed like uh, what he's drawing like you know how he drew stuff um, details and all that stuff um, later on you know we start doing conventions and we meet like guys like Valentine who are like uh, awesome artists local artists and uh, at first you know you know Val came by and it's like we, we used to like you know try to like teach other people so we'd have like art lessons as well and he'd say oh I'd like to have some art lessons and I'm like you don't really need art lessons looking through his portfolio because you know he's like an awesome artist right right totally so then after that like bright anvil became kind of a publisher like they started getting out their guys to do books and stuff how did you uh break into the industry from from bright anvil well first of all like uh i, I guess a lot of this you pick up like odd jobs so uh Logan would get a lot of stuff from Games Workshop. He had a connection with Games Workshop studio. Like, well, Games Workshop itself was trying to pu do some publishing with Warhammer and stuff. Right. And, but it was like an English company, and, and it's less distribution in North America. But, you know, you get like a few things published, and then you get some publishing credits, and you go to like other publishers and stuff. And then we try to uh, we'd go to conventions, because that's how you get your stuff seen. And uh, a whole bunch of different people would uh, go together to conventions and I think in one of the conventions um, Val, Adrian Afona 
and I think Marvin went to like Philly or something like that, and uh, they met up with um, some some editors, and uh, th people liked the, their work, and they kept in contact, and I think Adrian ended up uh, uh, with uh, Runaways, which is like uh, yeah. The way that Marvin explained it to me was that he dropped off his portfolio at I guess like the image booth or, or somewhere with one of the editors and I guess Brian K. Vaughan was like going through a pile of portfolios and he liked his stuff and sort of, sort yeah. of picked him to, to do the book. It, it was, yeah, I, I don't know exactly how it w went but yeah. I, I remember like uh, uh, they went to Philly and they started showing their stuff around and I think they met Josh Middleton around there. And uh, Josh kind of liked to Adrian stuff because it's a uh, a little similar where it's very not a lot of like rendering, but it's very like linear artwork. Right. And Josh kind of liked it, and he, I think he showed it to the editor, and probably like at some point, uh, this was when I think C. B. Sabowski was the editor, and, and uh, he, uh, he probably showed it around somewhere. Right. <laughs> they were looking for an artist for Brian because Brian K. Vaughan was doing. Um, one of their new books for the, I think it was Tsunami Line, which was just basically brand new stories that are not necessarily connected with the, the Marvel Universe, kind of more like solitary uh, stories. And right. Brian K. Vaughan was kind of like uh, pushing for this story in LA for Runaways. And I guess he liked Adrian's uh, drawing style and they, they went with that one. So how did you get involved? Uh, it was afterwards, uh, I think they, they um, they had an anchor for Adrian at first, but he wasn't. Uh, I guess it's back back in the day. You didn't have email as much, so I guess he couldn't talk to the anchor as much of how he would like uh, his artwork inked, which is a more linear style. Um, and I don't blame the anchor because I probably would, if I didn't know Adrian, I would have inked it the way he did. And that anchor put a lot more hatching and stuff to kind of you know push the art more to traditional comics, but Adrian had more philosophy towards more like uh, animated Japanimation, linear artwork. And I had the fortunate, you know, advantage of knowing Adrian personally or, or working in the same studio. So I could talk to Adrian and I inked his stuff before and he kind of liked like, a, the way I've kept the thin lines uh, in linear artwork. Were you also more familiar with that style that he wanted to go for? Uh, I think it's just more communication. Like I, yeah. I, I could talk to him. Yeah. Like, like, again, like it's not like today where you can go like on Google Talk or, or WhatsApp or whatever and just talk to someone, right? right? Or Skype, Skype the the uh, the inker. But back in the day, you know, like you'd email and maybe like a couple of days later you'll get like a response. But because we had the studio and we saw him working all the time and he lives in Toronto, I could talk to him and he's so the next second arc he asked me oh do you want to do some test pages and uh and i did some test pages and they you know the editors liked it as well so kind of went off there when you first were breaking into comics did you think that inking would play such a heavy role in your career like what 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 did where did you think your career would go and where where did it end up? Like, was inking always sort of what you wanted to do? No, well, inking wasn't really what I did. Like, I told you before, like, I went to university, so it's more, right. I was more academic, uh, you know, back in the days, you're, you're pushed to acad right. something academic related. Right. But uh, once I started doing more uh, artwork, you know, obviously I wanted to be a penciler and stuff, but 
uh, when I was went to that studio, I could see that <laughs> there's no like I wasn't close to the level that I should be as a penciler. So the best way to learn is maybe like ink over other people. So I, you know, I take tracing paper and ink over like old Steve McNiven drawings or sketches and stuff. Uh, and a bunch of other art, uh, pencilers there that were just starting out. And I just practiced like uh, I did, um, Logan would have some photocopies of some uh, artists from Extreme that I could practice over inking. So a lot of the hatching stuff I learned and you know, it sucked at first, but at least I was learning how people are hatching. It's, it's actually, it was more technical back then the way they hatched, especially the Jim Lee type hatching. Uh, it's very difficult to do that type of uh, hatching and the Steve Platt type of hatching back in the day. So at least I learned control nice. uh, back then. And then it kind of, I kept with it, you know. Cool. And as you practice, you get better and better. And oh, you get yes. call After Runaways, I assume you got called on to do a lot more stuff because people knew your inking? Yeah. So at that time, uh, they, they get me to fill in for other stuff. I try to remember like some Spider-Man stuff, uh, some other artists as well, because I had a very clean, clean line work. Mm -hmm. um, how would you describe your process, like your inking style? Um, is it better when you're inking to mimic the penciler or is it better to have your own style? Like how do you see inking in the, in the process and how do you do it? Well, for me, I, I've, I, I try to stay close close to the essence of the penciler more than uh, trying to like to the embellish side like I'll do some stuff to embellish you know to push the readability of the page rather than trying to put my stamp on it like some some of the some anchors like like to put their stamp on it like you can tell like certain anchor uh, inked a penciler regardless of who the penciler is you can tell right. me you probably couldn't uh, I, I would I try to keep everything clean that's the only thing I would say is because that's just more a uh, byproduct of the way I, I ink which is more with uh, nibs than brushes and uh, it's a very clean style and sharp style and a lot of like halos and uh, everything's just to kind of uh, augment the way it's read on the page rather than uh, putting my stamp on top of someone's uh, ink. And do editors and pencilers prefer that? Uh, I, I guess it depends on the penciler. I think some of the older schools uh, pencilers uh, don't mind you taking uh, uh, your putting your take on it or putting your your flair onto it and changing it but nowadays I think a lot of the pencils especially if you see the pencils they're very tight the pencils are very tight so I mean like you're not really giving that much room to embellish anyways right okay if that makes sense yeah, yeah like yeah. I mean um, there's less loose artists right that, like the older artists want to establish their style yeah, and they do and that in the penciling yeah right? it's very tight like all the hatching is like very precise like back in the day there'd be like uh, shorthands like it just like little ticks and you, you kind of know that they want like hatching out hatching out of the black or whatever. Nowadays, it's like they actually hatch out, like shaded in, so you, you kind of know like every single hash line is there mm. that you they want. So, I mean, there's not very much room to maneuver from. Right, right, absolutely. So, yeah, and, and I think that's from the Jim Lee era and like the image era that you, that you liked, that, you know, pencilers started establishing themselves as tighter and yeah, more signature and that sort of thing. So it's kind of interesting that you were a fan 
of the style that influenced your later career in the sense that now you know you had to you had to kind of deal with a tighter penciler for the inking style. Yeah, right? I, I think that's part of the advantage because everyone was moving towards that uh, style and moving towards that the way that way of drawing. Although right. if you look at the Jim Lee drawing, he's he's very organic though. It's right. Not, I guess he's got a very good uh, rapport with uh, Scott Williams, so yeah. it's like he draws something like Scott Williams will <laughs> fix it up or he knows how to hatch it up to make it look like Jim Lee. Yeah. And it looks awesome, you know, like, uh, <laughs> so, you know, like, yeah. it works. So since Runaways, like, did you, I always am curious about inkers and like, you know, when you're inking, you're sort of, you know, fourth or fifth down on like the credit on the credit roll sometimes in comics and stuff. It's like the writer, penciler, colorist, inker sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes inkers don't get credit at all sometimes. So how do you feel about your name recognition? Do you care at all about celebrity within the comic book industry? Like obviously people know who you are, yeah. but I wonder if there's a sense of, you know, the ego being at play in terms of you know, wanting to be out front versus being sort of more in the background as an inker? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I'm i not as concerned. I mean, if you go to the cons and stuff, you can see I have my own pencils and stuff. So right, I, I'm confident course. in the way I draw myself. So in terms of ego, I'm not... That it doesn't really matter as much to me. But the only thing that matters to me is the editors know my name. And that's the only thing, like... As long as the editors know my name, then I'm fine, because uh, that's where my income's coming from, really. Right. And um, I would like to be more known so that editors see my name and then hire me for jobs. That's the, that's the only thing. But um, I have a good, you know, when I go to these Toronto cons, a lot of uh, fans recognize me or come back every single year, every single con, and talk and chat, and, and that, that, that makes me feel good, you know? They know me. Was it crazy when Runaways became a show and you worked on it? Like, did you, how did you feel about that? Oh, it was totally surreal. I mean, like, uh, uh, I would never have thought I'd be involved. Well, you know, I never thought I'd be in the industry working at Marvel, first of, first of all. Like, I didn't know at the capability. And then be able to work on a project that eventually became a TV, has become a TV. Because if you remember back in the day, when I broke in, Marvel was still in that bankruptcy era, yeah. which was, you know, you had no idea they would make films, right? first of all. And, you know, the, you know, if you remember the type of films we got back then, it, it was like, you know, maybe you'd have a Superman was good. Spawn came out but in like 97. Spawn was, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, it's a B movie. It wasn't, you know, it was just kind of starting, you know, you got to give Todd credit for like being one of the first to kind of push it into that uh, media, right? right? But, you know, like it still wasn't, you know, it wasn't like what it's nowhere near what we're getting now nowadays. Right. You know, like you got like Howard the Duck, you know, like it's a B movie. It's not it's not the greatest thing ever. So anything coming out I always tell everyone, like, you haven't lived back in the day. Like anything that's coming out now is like compared to then it's like it's awesome. Yeah, the know? fact that you can get like a CGI dinosaur like on Runaways, just on like regular yeah, series television, television is like crazy. so awesome. Like, I had, there's no idea I would have like any of the Netflix shows would be like on TV like you could see your characters and they look believable you know like we had like oh if you google or go back to like the 70s 80s movies they were not good at all and even looking at something like back then they people still love Batman Begins you know but 
you look back at it, there's a lot of cheesy stuff back then. It, it, it's like, there's a lot of campy stuff that if it showed up today, it would not be anyone's top 10 movie <laughs> at all. Right, right. <laughs> you know I mean? And like, it was just because we came off like the Joel Schumacher Batman of the 90s and everybody was so refreshed by like the realistic take that, oh, yeah, that yeah, even yeah, happened, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like, it, it's different. Like it, nowadays it's just... Uh, yeah. They've just gone. Well, they're putting so much money into these these films, and the CGI. I mean, they're spending millions on CGI to make it believable. Right. Uh, you know, even like making the cape flow on Superman. You know, like back then, you just had a cape. <laughs> so, so were you? How long were you at Bright Anvil for, and what ended up happening to Bright Anvil? Uh, a lot of the. I've been there probably the longest, okay. aside from Logan, who, who's pretty much started. I mean, it's like different names. We had Frozen Ink, uh, Bright Anvil. We just uh, we we tried to do stuff. I mean, back in the day, it was a collective where we're we're trying to push each other to produce books. And uh, the problem, I think, the problem after a while is that then you started getting Google and stuff, and you could. Uh, um, you could connect with more people and it's easier to do it that way and editors and then uh, some people start getting busy getting actual work with uh, um, Marvel and DC like and you stuff. yeah and then uh, so having a physical space didn't make sense as much because we're spending you know downtown rent is like super expensive and getting more and more expensive so having a studio and people couldn't make it into the studio anymore and just like working at home because of deadlines and stuff. And they tried to sense. they tried to start their own imprint, right? Like, like sort of like Image in the sense that like there was going to be Bright Anvil books or like yeah, we tried to publish so yeah. but you know, uh, anyone that's done publishing, it, publishing costs are super expensive, right? And when you're a small company, it's really hard to get off the ground because you don't have as much exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, when we were doing it, there's less internet and there's no, nothing like Kickstarter where you can you know, get crowdfunded stuff or you, even just printing alone. I think it was like a, like a small run of like 500 books. It's like a two, three grand just to print the books back wow. in the day. And that's not including like if you were doing like image books where they have a fee for uh, doing all that stuff for you and putting their imprint on it, which helps because it's distribution but again like uh you need to reach the fan base to so they know about your book to buy it when it comes out because um the way publishing is is like you order three three months beforehand and then the book comes out nowadays like you can you can pester people on twitter to order through diamond stuff but back in the day you just have a mailing list and if if your mailing is not that big then you you can't reach as much fans right right so what about now like what are you what are you working on now what are you most excited about in terms of your career um what does your family think of all this because <laughs> you mentioned know. that you were more academic before and i'm sure your family sort of pushed you a little bit into university yeah i mean back in the day like they didn't know really know what it was but i, I think they're they're, pr they're proud of the stuff i do now because you know obviously like having stuff turned into tv shows and, hey i worked on that they're a little bit more proud of that like that stuff uh, right they can point to it yeah and then people starting to recognize comic books now is more i mean just generally i mean like as a geek too, like you, you or, or nerd, you, you you walk out now. It's like you're not afraid to show. Like I love my my Captain America. I love my Iron Mans and stuff. 
as it was back in the day. It's like, who who are those people? <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it's kind of an advantage as a comic artist. Like, you can be involved in these sort of things tangentially, yeah. but, like, nobody is pestering you. Like, you can still walk out in the street and be, like, your own person. Yeah, a little right? anonymous. Like, that's, that's kind of the best part of being a comic book artist. Like, oh, yeah, I worked on that, but just, like, yeah. I can still walk out without being, like, mobbed or anything like that, but... Uh, I think that's more true for like pencilers and stuff. I mean, like uh, Adrian is like so low key that even walking through convention centers, people don't really know who he is. But if they knew, <laughs> you know, you get mobbed, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, even like Val's Val's super low key too. But you know, I I know Bitch Planet's like a, such a huge property. And, and you you inked a story recently in their triple feature, right? The spinoff uh, of Bitch Planet. Actually, I actually drew the drew. And inked it. I did it all digitally. Okay. Uh, that's actually through Val. So I got to thank Val and, and Kelly Sue for for ha- having me on that. Um, yeah. But yeah. It's nice to like have alumni that you know kind of bring yeah, you back. Yeah, right? yeah. So so Connelly Lyons uh, wrote it. I actually met her beforehand. So um, it was an eight-page story, which is nice and quick. But uh, it, it was fun to be able to play around in, in his universe. Uh, and the way they wrote it, it was like so like it's kind of like up my alley because it, it was like a surrealistic type of story and I could like break break rules you know it, it wasn't very straightforward like it wasn't a straightforward like story and right and then you got to go you got to be a fan of X-Men but then you got to work on X-Men with X-Men Gold right that was oh yeah that's, that's definitely I mean, I've worked on a ton of X-Men stuff and uh, um, they just kept calling me back for a lot of the X-Men stuff because I, I knew the editor and uh, I guess I was I think that's one of the things I'm probably known for is more reliability yeah, so that's probably the key, right? Yeah. Like being able to complete stuff, yeah. and they just keep giving you more work, right? Yeah, it's more a deadline issue with me. Like, they, they call me in for... When I started getting more work, it was like, they call me in for, like, some rush work, and then I get it done, and they go, oh, we'll get you on some more stuff, and, and then, like, they can rely on me to, to finish the inking process for them. Because, uh, I mean, like, it's so tight, a lot of the, the pro- uh, publishing, especially with Marvel... Marvel and DC, but mostly when they try to put out like bi-monthly books and stuff, the the schedule gets really, really tight. So a lot of the pencilers are really rushing to get all the pencils done. And then when it gets to the inking and coloring phase, you know, you got you got to push that stuff uh, out really fast. And, right. And I, you know, it's just reliability. You know, I get the work done. And that's like any job too, though. But um, they could call on me and I'd get it done over the weekend or whatever for them and they'd be like, oh, cool. You know, <laughs> they could pass it on the colors. The colors, I mean, they're, they're still, uh, colors get the, I mean, colors and letters get the worst out of it because, you know, letters are sometimes literally just lettering whole book in a day type thing. Right. And uh, colors are like doing five pages a day. So what's the fastest you've turned around a book as an inker? Uh, I think I've done like five pages a day once. But, you know, that's like killing myself. That's wow. like That's like, all-nighters you know people are not uh on the film earlier with all-nighters wow but you know like sometimes it's rough you know you, you learn you learn certain um ways to like you know not necessarily shortcuts but stuff you can do to um increase your speed rate like what uh so so a couple of things for me is like first of all and this because i i ink traditionally so it's a, a lot of the stuff is just on uh, the traditional nib, and it's actually wet ink, so it's black India ink. So one of the things that, you know, it's a time-limited thing is that you have to wait until the ink dries. So, I mean, this is a simple trick for any, like, aspiring inkers or even pencilers that are inkers. I work on several pages at once, 
It's not like I work on one page from start to finish. So what I do is like I'll ink an area and then I'll put that aside and let it dry. And then I'll be working on another page at, uh, uh, while that's, that first page is running. So usually I'm doing like two or three consecutive pages at once. And that increases my speed rate because I'm not actually stopping and waiting for the ink to dry. Right. And the average length of a comic book is like 24 pages now, 24 to 32? Actually, they dropped it. So okay. it's, there's a little less pressure. Uh, so 20 pages uh, is the standard now. It used to, like, if you look at Runaways, it used to be like 23 to 24 pages. Um, and that's, if you think about it, that's a, over four issues. That's like another, uh, or I guess an eight issue arc. That's another extra issue <laughs> in there for, for the pencil. And, you know, like the time frame is the same now as it used to be. So, I mean, like it's not like um, there's, there's more time or whatever uh, back then. Um, and another, another, like, again, it comes back for me because I do it traditionally. Is I'll leave like the areas that need to be blacked, in, especially for rushed uh, work. Anything that needs to be blacked in, I'll, I'll do that in computer because you have the advantage of just blacking in right. uh, areas now in computer. And I'll just do that really quickly uh, in the computer because those areas take the longest to dry. And the worst is when you put your hand <laughs> over a wet area and don't realize it and put it on another area and then there's like this blotch of your hand. Uh, you can <laughs> wreck a whole you, page. You can wreck it. I think, you know, even a fingerprint, then you'd have to go back in Back in the day, I'd go in with white gouache to fix it. But now it's like, I fix all the tiny mistakes in computer, and then afterwards for the original pages, I'll go back and, and touch them up. But uh, for 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 production-wise, just everything in Photoshop just to fix, and it's a lot faster now that way as well. So you do you need like a giant scanner for your boards and stuff? Or uh, there are, but I I still use uh, I think it's like an eight and a half by eleven scanner, and I just piece it together. Nice. Uh, I mean, I should I should get eleven by seventeen. But back in the day, they were really really expensive. The eleven by seventeens, a few grand each, and I couldn't afford that. Uh, the smaller ones were like a um, hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks. So uh, a lot more economical for me. Right, and then you just go in and like take yeah. each part of the page and make it a full page. Yeah, it's, it's a process. It's, it, it, like it's, it's like second nature now. But right. uh, now they have them. They're fairly cheap. They're all-in-one uh, scanners that are pretty good that you can get uh, nice. that are cheaper. <laughs> nice. Uh, what about the stuff you're working on now? What are you most excited about these days? Well, the last project I worked on, well, for Marvel, is uh, Daughters of the uh, Dragon, which is... Nice. Uh, you know, because of the Luke Cage series, and that's yeah, I, I've always like loved Misty Knight and and Colleen Wynn, especially the dynamic of them. And the last thing I actually another one that I've done a few years ago is like Shang Chi, which also had Colleen Wynn and, and and Misty in it, and that's gonna be a movie soon. So I'm I'm, know, I'm so jacked with that. I mean, there's so many projects that have been turned into TV, even like Legion. Uh, I worked on that one too. Yeah, it was like Legion Son of X you worked on, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so back in the day, it was like X-Men Legacy. And it's basically the story of Legion. And I think they've rebranded as Legion uh, uh, issue now because of the TV show. Right, they relaunched the series as, as Legion yeah, I think, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's cool that these are all becoming TV and, and movie probably. And it's just going to, I guess, keep going because, you know, they're, they're Marvel has so many characters. Um, in their library so i mean like just having like regular people know these characters now is so awesome as an asian yourself asian canadian how do you feel about the shang chi uh movie that's been announced uh, yeah, or they, rumored at least how do they do it right uh, I, I mean like i'm 
I would like something. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's all martial arts. So I, I really like some good choreogra- choreography with that stuff. Would be super awesome. You know, it doesn't have to be cheesy or anything. There's some really awesome like Hong Kong films with like martial arts and stuff. Yeah. That they can really do. Like, I mean, like, I don't know if they'll go this way, but there, there's Shaw like, Brothers and yeah. I mean, even like. Um, Donnie Yen did a, a movie a few years ago called uh, SPL. I don't know what it's called here. It's like Kill Zone or something like that, which is like, it's got martial arts and stuff, but it's very modern. It's very like, a, uh, I mean, it's still triad based, but you know, if, if you take like the old 80s triad stuff, but kind of like update it, that's kind of what it is. So they were doing some MMA stuff as well wow. in, in, the, in the arts. If you haven't watched it, you should watch uh, it. Check it out. Um, there's actually like, you know, people talk about this. There's actually like a scene like uh, I guess like a two minute scene in there where it's like uh, I forgot the other guy's name but he's like a very popular uh, uh, action star as well but they did like a two minute uh, scene where it's like all unchoreographed fighting because Donnie Yen is like naturally knows like martial arts as well right and you can tell the difference because there's some hesitation in some of the moves because they don't know what's coming <laughs> right. there's only the begin I think only they choreograph the beginning and the ending of that scene uh, so they know what what starts off and what what ends, but in the alleyway, like everything else is like just all all like as if they were fighting. <laughs> each it's other. like yeah, it's like martial arts. It's improv. like a, it was like an MMA like a match. You wow, know? crazy! But, you know, you have to be careful because they were two stars too. But they were like you could see the hesitation <laughs> in, in what they were doing because you know they're like getting ready for each one's like jabbing and stuff. And there wasn't like what you can tell like in a good martial arts. Uh, movie is if they don't do a lot of cuts you actually see all the moves you know the the, the, the actors or whatever are really doing those moves and uh, I hope they do it that way I mean like it's Shang-Chi so I mean like uh, some you know it, it, obviously there's gonna be throwback to like Bruce Lee and stuff but yeah. you know like I hope they do it well I really think they're gonna try to do it properly if anything to sort of stick it to Netflix and Iron Fist and how bad that that was like they're probably yeah, gonna I was so disappointed because one of the things that you gotta do right with Iron Fist is have the martial arts right, right. and you're like what's with all these cutscenes I don't know what this guy's <laughs> doing uh, some I, of it was in the dark too I couldn't see anything I mean when Daredevil does better like action scenes than Iron Fist then there's something wrong yeah right? I mean, totally the, the, but Daredevil kind of set the bar really hard with, with, right. the, with the action what about like the representation because it's not just about the martial arts it's not just you know, it's 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 also where we are in time now. Everyone's kind of talking about diversity, and we're finally getting representation in movies. Does that mean anything? Oh, to you? of course it means tons. I mean, like definitely, like back in the day, you're like, oh, this doesn't sell, that doesn't sell, you know. But you know, Black Panther sells, Captain Marvel sells, Wonder Woman sells. It sells tickets, and I don't think Marvel's Marvel doesn't make a movie to lose money. They're not there to lose fans, right. so they're gonna put their best foot forward. I mean, people went to Crazy Rich Asians, so it, yeah, it, they watched it. Was, it. Yeah, I it mean, like people watched it. Yeah. I mean, like, um, in the end, if you tell a good story, that's all that matters, right? You know, right, like you, sure. you don't. It's not about who's acting in it, and there's so many great actors and stuff. And obviously, China has a lot of like films they're trying to do, but I don't think they have the good writing that uh, Americans have like with the with the screenwriting and stuff um, and that's what they really need in their their movies like a lot of the China movies are very like uh, they're good at the f- special effects and stuff right and like doing some like really gigantic like you know uh, epic type storylines 
but the story is always like missing like any emotional touch that uh, a lot of American films can just kind of like tap into. Like they know, they know like, like you know, a lot of it's like just family or, or relationships between people that really touch the fan, like just people, regular people and get the peoples into the, the movie theaters. Yeah, that's amazing. So what can, what do you think is sort of the best advice you can give to someone who wants to break in? I know that for you, reliability is a big key. Is that kind of where you would go with that? Oh, you definitely like uh, reliability with uh, as a penciler, as inker, um, as a colorist. You have to be able to produce stuff on time, and it goes for any job. But uh, because as a creative, you're not you don't see the boss all the time, so you you're not as used to that. I think. Uh, especially in, in the growth of your career, you're not used to talking to a boss. And, and because you're creative, you set your own hours, so you work whenever you want. Uh, it's not like a nine to five where a boss will say, oh, I need this before the end of the day. And their end of the day is five o'clock, right? For, for you, it's like, oh, I need this. If, if an editor says, I need this tomorrow, like, as a creative, you can take that as, does that mean tomorrow morning at 7 a.m.? Or does that mean tomorrow morning at 7 p.m. when, you know, when I finish or right, whatever? Right, right, right. Uh, I try to take it as 7, p- 7 a.m. in the morning. Um, try to aim for that. Um, or, you know, you know, like, that's that's the best case scenario. And uh, it's easy to fall off and do stuff for the 7 p.m. And say, oh, he said Friday. It's Friday. It's it's still technically Friday on the West Coast. You know, like <laughs> you can make excuses for yourself, but at the end of the day, I'm sure the editor wanted it at 7 a.m. So when he opens the email, it's like, okay, I'm passing this off to like the colorist or whatever. Right, and, right? They, and they still have the full day to the full rest of the day. Yeah, to do it. I mean, like the I think for them, it's, it's just like you got to keep on. Keep the keep the engine rolling type thing, and maybe like to like this work for you. Join a community, find a community of artists. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, like uh, nowadays, like Francis has his own studio, so I mean, he has a community in Toronto um, that's really good too. We're so. talking about Francis Manipal for those who for those oh, who don't know. About that. Yeah, so Francis, it's it's a, it's so so weird to because he came in as a high school student uh, when we we're Bright Anvil. Uh, I think he did a co-op at our our, our, our uh, studio, and uh, to see him now, it's like it's, it's <laughs> him grow up and, and uh, doing so well. It's, it's cool. So busy, man! Like so, so busy. And yeah. Like everybody's hanging on everybody. You know his his every move, Francis, basically. So yeah. that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So I mean, like it, it, I, I guess you know the studio atmosphere must have put an imprint on him because he has right. his own studio now, and right. he has a good group of guys there, and, and they're very, and I guess it's kind of like what we wanted to do back in the day, but it's not, it wasn't as easy because, um, again, it's hard to draw like um, more artists that are like-minded because you only have like a, you, you only know each other through walking in right. <laughs> like a comic book store. You didn't have like, oh, I know these guys from internet, or I know this guy, I've seen this guy's artwork from wherever. What about being adaptable? Like as an inker, you you ink over so many different artists. Oh, yeah, uh, you have to kind of switch gears a lot, right? Yeah, I definitely think that's that's important for me to get uh, more work. Obviously, and, and for me, the concern is always like uh, I try, I try my best to like speak to the um, the penciler and say, is this like close to what you want, or, or does this look okay to you? Uh, if there's anything you don't like, let me know. And I'll try adapt and change change the way it inked to you. Um, obviously, with certain deadlines or rush work, you can't do that much. But any future work, um, 
you try you try to do that. So sometimes uh, some some pencilers will come back and ask for me specifically for for inker, and that helps too. You know. And today we're at the Fan Expo Comic Con live. So what are you promoting here, and what do you like about the convention atmosphere? Uh, a lot of times when we go to these conventions, more to meet the fans and uh, see them in. Hopefully, like uh, the best thing I love is like some 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 fans that come to Toronto Comic Con or Fan Expo a lot. They'll come by and say, "Oh, I've, been, I've never like I never I've seen your work or, or I never know who you are, but you know I, I I like your work or or you know oh now I know who you are." Like they associate with the stuff that I've done with with uh, some of the Marvel work and. It's like, oh, you're a local guy, and they realize I'm local, and they'll come back every every uh, con and stuff and say hi, and I think that's the best thing, just to build a fan base uh, within uh, uh, Toronto, especially because it's my hometown. Right, that's awesome, and you got some original artwork here, so hopefully you can sell some original pages. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to uh, keep up with your career and what you're doing next? What are you doing next? Uh, I'm not sure what I'm doing next. Okay. Uh, I'm in between jobs right now, but. Uh, uh, hopefully some more Marvel stuff, uh, hopefully some more penciling stuff. Uh, I love to penciling. I, I work with tons of people all around the world now. Like again, with Google and, and internet, it's like it, it's a lot easier to like touch base with a lot of American writers or whatever and collaborate um, with projects. Um, but uh, uh, you can find me at, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I think it's at CS Young. Nice. And uh, Instagram. I usually post my artwork on uh, at uh, that one's at Craig Young. So okay. uh, the whole full name. But you can Google my name and you can find all my stuff uh, anywhere. Um, but yeah, for me, technically, I'm just looking forward to all the movies that are coming. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, are you thinking of like penciling your own stuff too? Like you're doing you're doing Rift World, right? That's your art, right? Uh, actually, that was actually the last Toronto Comic Con. Uh, the writer came by and asked me to do some of the okay. the Rift World stuff. Um, I'm not exactly sure how what what else is going on with that series. Uh, the, the writer's really busy. He's doing he's I, I don't know if he's based in Vancouver, but he does a lot of filming in Vancouver. Nice, and nice. it's more local stuff. And um, cool. that was a fun project. Is it hard to? keep track of like what's coming out of what you've done and stuff like that like you you're you're doing a ton of stuff and there's always stuff coming out and by the time things come out sometimes you're on to the next project is it tough to figure out like you know keep everything straight yeah definitely like the release times are, are uh, a little hectic uh, sometimes like uh, because the rush jobs it could be coming out next week or it could be like something that's coming out like a month from now right um, some of the penciling work takes a little longer to to come out so you're like because it has to go through like a, a coloring phase or 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 a letter phase so the riff world that took a i think a couple months it was actually too bad but um it came out online first so uh i know it came out digitally on comicsology yeah but, it's on comicsology but i don't know if they're gonna put it in print or not so that type of stuff i don't know um same with the daughters of the dragon it was actually a digital first so it came out in november which is like close closer to when I finished. I think I did it in October or something like that. But the trade actually came out a couple weeks ago. So I mean that's like a three month difference. Wow! And the 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 guy who drew Misty Knight the first time is here, Arvel Jones. So that's kind of oh, yeah, awesome. Oh yeah, 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 that's that's awesome. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, is there anything else people should watch out for in shops coming out now? Uh, I don't know. Just. Uh, Pick up some runaways trades. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, get some royalties. So. Yeah, the superior <laughs> octopus we have going on on the table. 
all kinds of stuff, man. You're gonna you're gonna work for years. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing I love too. Like, um, we get like they, Marvel does a lot of trades. Uh, recently, they did like a trade of Iron Man, which is awesome because I did like a Iron Man 2020 uh, story back in the day with Liu Kang, one of my buddies, Liu Kang. He's actually a local artist as well. Uh, Mortal Kombat name, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He was with uh, he was with Udon, uh, and Dreamwave. I don't know if he was Ud if he worked for Udon, but he worked with Dreamwave and he did some Street Fighter stuff. Nice. Uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff too. I think Devil May Cry, uh, but um, yeah, I, re I remember Dreamwave. They yeah, did the Transformers stuff. Back yeah, yeah, in the day. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, we did a story. Uh, quite a while ago so you know I didn't rem remember like you know it, it, got, it went through the publishing it went through the publishing phase and trade phase already but they repackaged it as, uh, because I guess it's close to Iron Man 2020 the actual date so they packaged the Iron Man 2020 and it actually had the old I don't know if you remember like a Spider-Man annual that had uh, Arnold Stark it was like Iron Man 2020 which I read as a kid wow. packaged with ours there's some you know a whole bunch of Iron Man 2020 stories and ours was in there. It's like, oh, this is so awesome. That's so cool. So, Full you know, circle moment for you. That's, that stuff comes out like every so often. So, you know, I get a trade as a comp in the mail and it's like, hey, this this is pretty cool. You know, like I didn't know that. That was coming. Like like you're saying, like sometimes I don't even know these things are coming out. Like they would repackage some stuff. And like uh, the, um, the X-Men Legacy, they repackaged it as Legion as well. Right. So <laughs> that came out recently too. So I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was coming out. Yeah, totally, man. All right, man. Well, I'm so glad that I got to talk to you. You've been super generous with your time. And uh, I'll uh, let everybody know to check out your stuff. And uh, thank you so much. And we'll uh, see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It's really uh, cool to talk to you. It's cool to talk to you too, man. We'll see each other around. Thanks a lot, man. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one -on -one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.